Well, you know, my, my message series to this point has been supernatural protection, and I intend to continue down that line. But I got changed up by the Lord late morning this morning after I had a nice outline of all of my scripture and everything I wanted to do. He completely changed tonight's message. So I don't have my usual uh, scripture references for you to read along with. Uh, I'm gonna be speaking from my heart for the next little bit of time here. And you can believe with me that this will be exactly what the Lord wants us to take a look at uh, during this service and the others that follow. And so basically, uh, it's still supernatural protection, only my title is going to be, subtitle will be economic protection. We wanna talk about God's protection for our financial lives and the impact that his direction to us has on and what's happening in our society now. We have a conflict of ideas going on, one that says, if we're gonna get beyond this pandemic, we need to continue being locked down uh, really for a longer period of time and longer period of time. And the other viewpoint is that the economic devastation that could be wrought from that in our nation and for every family who's a part of this nation uh, may be worse than the disease. I remember in my, I think it was my first or second live stream several weeks ago, I did voice that uh, concern at that time that the cure wouldn't be worse than the disease. Well, we're getting to a point where some evaluation of that needs to be made, made quickly. And there's a part we play as Christians in, in knowing how to respond to the direction of civil government. And so I wanna take a moment uh, tonight, I wanna take this, this live stream and talk about uh, these kinds of concerns that we're going to be addressing. Uh, basically, I think there's some foundational context that we need to have in place before we even begin looking at this. You need to remember that your highest accountability is to the kingdom of God and that's represented by his word. The second level of accountability to higher authority in any of our lives is to that of the laws the, of the country in which we live. So here for us, that would be American law. But the highest order of authority that we're to look to is of course those that are governing the kingdom of God, which is part of the revelation his word brings to us. And so with that in mind, you know, uh, I should say that being an American citizen, and there's no one more patriotic than I am, but being Amer an American citizen, there's really little conflict <clears throat> between what the word says <clears throat> and what our law requires. Or at least that's been true for most of our history. And the reason is simple, and that is because we are the only nation in the world today that has been founded solely on the principle of God's word. Now, of course, Israel and the old covenant uh, are an example of another nation that has been founded on the principle of the Judeo-Christian ethic. But America is, is, is really the nation that is the flagship for a country that is founded 
on the precept of God's Word. Contrary to what a lot of people have learned from their history books, you know, the source material for all of our founding documents, 80% of it came from the Bible. That is the uh, conclusion of a University of Houston study done back in the 1960s. And so our, our Constitution, our Bill of Rights, which described the laws that emanated from these founding documents, were founded on the Word of God. And of course, that means that that law is going to be consistent with the Bible principle of life. As a matter of fact, all of Western civilization and the term civilized emanates from that ethic we refer to as the Judeo-Christian ethic, the principles of the Bible. And so that being the case, you know, you begin looking at our responsibility, first of all, to the kingdom of God. And then we can't, certainly can't take lightly the laws that govern America. How, to, how do we begin resolving those occasions on which a conflict does exist? Really, that problem didn't become significant until, well, I'd say the early part of the 1900s when Woodrow Wilson began pushing a progressive agenda, which basically is another term for secular and humanistic thought, and it began taking hold and it began to influence a lot of the offices that govern this nation. Our judiciary in 1948, in a well-known case in American jurisprudence came up with the term separation of church and state. And it was never God's idea or a constitutional mandate that church be separated from the state. God doesn't want leadership of a nation being segregated from the guidance of the principle that his word brings. Yet in 1948, uh, uh, I think it was a Supreme Court ruling that did this, pulled out the reference to separation of church and state from an obscure letter written by Thomas Jefferson in defense of his deistic views. And yet that suddenly became precedent for all of the lawmaking since then. So in the 1960s, that precedence was used to pull prayer out of the public school system and has been used over and over and over again to remove God further and further from the civil arena. And so today we probably have more of a challenge in reconciling conflict between American law and what the kingdom of God tells us we should be doing. Uh, but there is a way to bring that reconciliation about. Of course, the, the things that need to most be reconciled are those things that most affect our life as believers and American citizens on this earth. And so I'm uh, going to take a moment and also mention another contextual foundational truth that we need to be mindful of. The Bible said, Jesus said, that the whole kingdom of God, which is our highest order of accountability, 
operates on the principle of sowing and reaping. If you were to visit Mark chapter 4, read about the parable of the sower, <clears throat> when the disciples questioned Jesus about the parable, he said, you don't know this parable? How are you going to know any of them? Meaning that it is a fundamental truth that governs operation in the kingdom of God. And then he said later in that same chapter, along about verse 26, I think, so is the kingdom of God, as though a man should cast seed into the ground. This is a foundational truth that we need to have in place in our daily life if we're going to be accountable to the authority of God's word. Now, a lot of times we, we perhaps define sowing as financial giving. Uh, that isn't exactly accurate because Jesus said the seed we sow is the word of God. But it does have a financial place in the word of God the only times the word sowing and reaping refer to the management of our finances is when that money is used to enable the preaching of the gospel. Read Galatians 6, 6 sometimes, which mandates us to support the word we are taught. And it says, you know, materially, financially, enable it. The next verse says, don't be deceived about this. God isn't going to be mocked. What a man sows, he reaps. And so we can understand it does have a financial basis. But it's not just financial. If you're talking finances, how are you going to get any money to sow? It is by sowing your effort, your gifting, your time, and producing an income that will enable you to do what the Bible says is take care of your own, which is a mandate. Whether you're a family of one, a family of 10, whatever your level of responsibility is, you're to take care of your own, not rely on somebody else to do it. And that means being engaged in what the Bible calls labor. He said the laborer is worthy of his hire, ensuring you an income appropriate to the labor you invest. The word labor means consistent, diligent effort. And then in Ephesians 4.28, we're told that we're to labor at that which is good. There's something good for you to labor at doing, something honest and reputable, something that is consistent with your abilities, both natural and spiritual. And you're to labor at that which is good so you may have to give to him that needeth. So the Lord wants us to generate an income that first of all enables you to take care of your own because until yours or your family's needs are met, you don't have anything yet to give to him that needeth. And so he wants us to have the resource to give to help others who perhaps don't know the truths that have set you free and enable them to begin progressing in their life. But you're not gonna have it if you can't labor. And of course, we see in the Old Testament early in the record of scripture talking about sowing and then reaping. God told Isaac in Genesis 26, when there was a famine in the land, and this was the land God had called him too. 
his land that God said would flow with milk and honey, yet there was a famine in the land. And God said, Isaac, don't leave the land where I've called you, remain in that land. So Isaac did, and he continued to act as if everything were normal in the sense that he continued his labor. Now we're looking at an agrarian society in that day, and that's the basis for most of the analogies the scripture uses, but it would relate to any vocational pursuit today. You know, Isaac, uh, as most people were either farmers or, or sheep herders or had cattle, herdsmen, whatever, Isaac sowed in that land of famine. And the result was he reaped a hundredfold in the same year. God honored, supernaturally honored, his response to kingdom principle. And he sowed in that land, reaped a hundredfold in that same year, and his flocks and his herds increased, and you know, the world around him envied him. The Philistines that surrounded Isaac, who were part of the world of that day, looked at him and envied him. In much the same way, God wants our lives to be a written epistle that attract people to the truth that is bringing fruit in our life. And so one of the core tenets of our faith is to sow, first of all, our time, our effort, and our gifting in order not only to take care of our own, but so we'll have beyond our need to give to him that needeth. And now we're confronted with a situation where we're being told we can't work. And I think it's time that we begin to be more proactive in rectifying the situation. Is the government that we live under, is civil government, uh, stepping outside the boundaries of constitutional law and requiring that? The answer to that is no. In the time of a national emergency, they can suspend individual liberty, but the key is temporarily if it's going to be within the common good. So no, civic author civil authority, beginning with the office of president throughout Congress, governors of state legislatures and, and, and those state legislatures all have the responsibility to bring law to bear that will benefit uh, the all, overall experience of American life. And in time of national emergency, they can suspend temporarily individual liberty in order to bring what's in the best interest of the nation to the surface. And so we all agree, okay, we've got a pandemic going, uh, you know, and the medical professionals tell us that we need to begin social distancing, even to the extent of closing down certain non-essential businesses. And we cooperate with that. The question is, how long is this temporary measure supposed to be in place. Well, I think that, you know, it un unfortunately bec can become a politicized question because depending on which side of the political stage someone stands on, 
It might seem to be in one party's best interest to get things rolling right now as quick as we can, get the economy booming again, looking forward to the election in November especially, and it is clearly in the other party's best interest to do what uh, you know can reasonably be done to keep that from happening, keep the economy at a low ebb going into the next election. And we would all like to think that politics doesn't play a role in the decision-making process, but welcome to reality. Our politicians are human beings and they may be aware of the fact that they have a responsibility to do what they genuinely think is best for the American public, especially their constituency. However, there is that pressure to toe the party line, and it is evident. So I think our responsibility as a citizenry is to help them uh, not just toe the party line, but truthfully do what is in the best interest of the nation. And right now we are fast approaching the point where the economic damage done to America in general and individual families in particular, uh, the damage there may well outweigh whatever benefits may still exist in maintaining a shelter in place or a lockdown, either partial or total. So how do we then go about influencing our politicians to be realistic and make a decision that is going to be in the common interest of the majority of Americans? Well, of course, it is not by uh, a, a violent opposition to civil law. That's something the Bible clearly tells us not to engage in. If you've ever read Romans 13, you'll see the word clearly tells us that if we resist the authority, the civil authority, because that's the context of these passages that we live under, then we do so to our own damnation. Some people find it hard to understand these passages because it says there that there is not an office of government or a, an authority, a governmental authority that hasn't been ordained of God. And yet we can look back through history and see a lot of governments that have been manifestly evil and promoted uh, great pain and heartache on their populace. So how can it be that God has ordained governmental authority of every sort? Well, it's because that's the way God brings order out of chaos in the social arena. God is not a God that ever endorses anarchy. And so that order can only be experienced in the social arenas of, of, of human life to the extent that or government uh, authority be put in place and that we respect it appropriately. But then there are going to be occasions when God's, it's a difference between God's ordaining governmental authority and the men that sometimes occupy those seats of authority. Uh, we are fortunate in America 
to live under a system that allows us to put our own leaders in office. That means through the political process, by going to the polls, by voting in line with the Judeo-Christian ethic which is defined specifically for us by our constitution and bylaws, voting accordingly knowing what the politicians that are running for office stand for, looking at the fruit of their public lives, because Jesus said you measure by the fruit, not by whether or not you like the way they look, like the way they talk, like what they say. Write all of that off. You judge by the fruit. And then accordingly, You invest your vote because it is truly an investment of God's principle into the life of our nation. You invest your vote for any given candidate. And one thing all politicians understand is that their careers will be short-lived if their constituency doesn't like what they do. And so when we talk about being able to change the civil arena uh, in a way that would align uh, the laws of the land to better align with the Word of God. We talk about using the pressure of the polling place. One thing that has always bothered me a little bit about Christian pursuit of civic responsibility is it's like, you know, we're real quiet about it. We'll just pray and God will take care of it. Prayer is hugely important, but then you need to put legs to your prayer by going to the polling place and voting for the person uh, whose fruit most demonstrates consistency with the word that you hold dear. And of course, you know, that awareness is what keeps politicians sensitive to your opinion. And sadly, Christian opinion uh, has been out-verbalized, out-vocalized <clears throat> by many in the secular community. And so we have lawmakers and leaders in the civic arena that don't give a hoot about the Word of God. And it's our responsibility according to the Word and according to our own leadership, the founding fathers of this nation. George Washington, our first president, said that it was our Christian duty and duty as American citizens to put Christians in office. I'll say something now that isn't very politically correct, but America is a Christian nation. I don't care who you've said anything, who you've heard say anything to the contrary, America is a Christian nation not because we don't welcome all faiths in America and die to protect their right to pursue their faith as they see fit, not because we uh, categorize one group as less significant than another, but we are a Christian nation because those are the precepts that our founding documents were based upon and that has defined America for all of these centuries. And it is the only reason we have prospered more than any nation in human history. 
And so, yes, we are a Christian nation. And it is our responsibility as the body of Christ. And if the polls are right, we outnumber everyone else in America by a large margin. And yet our voice has been silent enough, our activity in the civil arena absent enough that we've let our leadership slip to secular and humanistic viewpoint and opinion, and it's showing up in our law. Now, no laws uh, that are enacted by our government, according to the Word of God, can or should be ignored, not according to the Word. I mean, you know, we're told by the Word to give tribute to whom tribute is due, talking about taxation, to the Roman Empire, the most oppressive government perhaps in human history over a long term. The most oppressive government imaginable and yet the word says pay taxes. Don't resist it. Jesus paid taxes. Now he went fishing when it was time to pay taxes and took a coin out of the fish's mouth. Meaning that it's something that God will help you supernaturally do but you need to do it. We don't ignore law simply because it may not be comfortable for us or our present lifestyle in order to be obedient to it. Uh, and we don't, you know, the things that we see in the Word that impact our lives in an individual way, we often obey laws uh, that might infringe on uh, that part of our individual experience if it's better for the common good. So there are just a few selective things that we really have to be attentive to that are that important. You know, I had somebody ask me uh, recently about um, why are we not forcing the issue of assembly as a church? Doesn't the Bible say not to forsake the assembly of yourselves together. So how can a law that has been acted requiring us not to gather together override what the Bible says? Well, I think that it's, if you read the Bible in the way that I believe it should be read, then you know the matter of assembly that's being addressed there is for personal considerations of receiving the love, the admonishment, and the exhortation you need. You need to go to church. And you know, online is fine for us, you know, uh, a part of the time, but you need to show up in person. You can't do life digitally all of the time. But this is a personal call. And now we're dealing with an issue <clears throat> that has a ramification just beyond your personal preference. And yes, it's true that we have supernatural protection if you believe the word from this coronavirus. So I've had people say we can come in faith, nothing's gonna touch us by any means, and we can still gather together, not forsake the assembly of ourselves together. Now, whoa, whoa, wait just a minute. Because you have to read this uh, as a whole, and there, there are other places in the Word that say even though you may have a level of faith where you can eat meat, even though there still may be others that are affected by 
uh, religious legalism that don't feel good about eating meat. And the Bible doesn't say just to go ahead and do it in their face in spite of them. It says, no, if you're gonna be a stumbling block to your brother, then you don't do it. And I happen to know, perhaps because I pastor the church, I hear a lot of commentary from congregational members that express fear and anxiety about gathering together because of the coronavirus. Even though the promise of God is available to them, the touch of fear now has opened them to something they don't really wanna be open to. So those of you who are of great faith feel good about coming together. Don't impose your faith on those who are not quite there yet who are still wrestling with fear and anxiety about it because they're still gonna come. The church meets, they're still gonna come. They'd feel condemned if they didn't and they don't wanna be viewed as less than spiritual, so they would come. And the result is we're putting them in a compromising position by having an arena uh, you know, of come to church even the law, though the law says don't. Now, so there are certain things that are in the common good that override personal conviction or personal interest, I should say. And so that's why uh, this is not something that I have trouble abiding by. It is reasonable because of the health uh, professionals and others that know well enough for us to social distance, to uh, minimize our gatherings to 10 or less, to perhaps wear face masks or gloves. It's not inappropriate to engage in these practices. But now it's coming to a place where, all right, do we just sit here and allow America to go down the tubes economically while the politicians batter around uh, their political futures on the basis of staying home longer or getting back to work quicker? I think, and this is my opinion now, I need to distinguish my opinion from the word, but my opinion is that the models we have seen in this coronavirus have all been a joke. None of them have been anywhere close. There's no reason to suspect that's gonna change because none of them since the outset have been close to what the reality has been. And the second truth, I believe, is that the history of this thing is beginning a downturn. And it's my personal opinion that social distancing can be maintained even in the workplace and letting America get back to work. Even if it meant wearing a mask or gloves in the workplace. Maintaining distance from other employees. There are ways that we could put America back to work and still use some conventional wisdom regarding social distancing. And I think it's time that we begin expressing that opinion to our politicians who without the benefit of the pressure we can bring to bear on their decision-making process are gonna go with the loudest voices which are often secular. 
So I think our voices need to be heard in this matter. One of the most fundamental truths of who we are in the kingdom of God is that we sow our time, our talent, and our effort in generating an income to take care of our own and then to have an excess to use for other people's needs. It's time that we go back to work or getting close to it, in my humble opinion. But if we don't make our voices heard, then it's not likely the politicians are going to respond to our concerns. How do you do that? Well, the most uh, conventional ways of engaging in that process are simply to email, uh, use email, social media, texts, phone calls, letters, cover up your civil authority. In Minnesota, that means the governor's office should hear a lot from you and any of your other elected representatives. They need to begin hearing from you. And I think very often, a deliberate voice being raised of that sort through a major portion of their constituency will be all they need to fulfill the responsibility of their office, which is to be uh, responsive to the concerns of the people that put them in office. And then, of course, the question gets raised, well, you know, if we do this next week and nothing happens, and it's same-o, same-o, and we see civil authority in some states and other states, hopefully not our own, prolonging shelter in place or lockdown or shutdown of small businesses, what do we do then? Do we protest? Is protest legal? The answer to that is yes, it is legal. It is a constitutional right and part of the liberty that you're granted in Christ the right to assemble. Now, of course, there are protocols that would have to be followed before a protest could even be marginally okay. And the first and the biggest is it would have to be utterly nonviolent. As a matter of fact, one of the things that the word resisteth the authority, those who resisteth the authority resist unto the damnation of their own selves. The word resist implies violence. The first word uh, in the king or in the concordance, Strong's concordance, uh, rendered resisteth, <laughs> that wasn't right, resisteth. Uh, in the old King James, literally means range for battle. And of course, that implies violence. And we are mandated not to go down that road. There are some very narrow exclusions that were the basis for the American Revolution. But we don't have time to go into that study right now. Just let it be sufficient for the moment that 99.9% .9 of the time, your response to civil directive can be resisted only peaceably. And so a protest and the organizers of that protest have the huge challenge 
of ensuring that rabble-rousers can be tended to to keep the peace and keep it from being nonviolent. And that's a big task. We see Martin Luther, Luther King Jr. managed to do that in the 60s during the civil rights protest. Even under duress and water cannons and abuse at the hands of the authorities, people did not respond with violence. Violence was not part of the protest movement. And it was the most effective protest movement in American history. So if we can take a lesson from that example, then we would have to say engaging in the process of protest would have to be peaceful. It could not be any other way. And it would have to respect as many of the guidelines given by civil government for social distancing. So the protesters would probably need to wear masks and gloves and maintain the appropriate separation from other people. But that can have a dramatic impact on our leadership. They say that one letter uh, represents 100 people that had the same opinion but didn't take the time to write. You know, it's similar for emails or other methods of communication. But when a protest occurs, you can multiply the impact by a hundredfold. But it should be an effort of last resort. It should be managed peaceably with no room, no room for violence. <clears throat> and it should be done with an eye to the social distancing guidelines that civil government has given us to the maximum degree possible. Now, these are the, the possibilities. My personal belief system says that if enough of us communicate through normal channels, which would be social media feeds, email, text messages, letters, maybe an individual visit to see someone, if we restricted our uh, expression of objection or resistance to direction that civil authority is bringing, in that manner, and enough of us engaged in it, I believe the problem would be resolved more quickly than you might imagine. And the sea change would take place, so to speak. Businesses would be opened again. People would go back to work. And for a season, there will be a need to be aware of using basic intelligence and uh, maintaining some reasonable social distancing practices. And in that manner, we could see the most basic mandate of the word to us for our awareness. Jesus said, how are you, how you gonna know anything about the kingdom of God if you don't understand the principle of sowing and reaping? The whole kingdom works on that principle. You can't have money to sow until you have an excess over your family's need. And you can't have that until you've labored at that which is good. And then the implication of that verse in Ephesians 4.28, you will have seed to give to him that needeth it. So we need to get back to work. It's who we are, what we are, and we're already seeing an increased huge increase 
in incidents of uh, domestic abuse occurring because volatile people are being locked in together for a longer and longer period of time. We're seeing uh, rates of oppression and depression go up rapidly, suicides increase. We're reaching the point where the proposed cure is worse than the disease. We need to make our voices heard and let's get America back to work again. There is one final and perhaps most important consideration of all, and that's prayer. You know, we're told in 2 Chronicles chapter 7, as we've talked about on numerous occasions, we're clearly told that if we humble ourselves, and he's talking to people that are called by his name. If you consider yourself a Christian, guess whose name you're called by? If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves. First of all, that simply means, doesn't mean you crawl around on your tummy like a worm. It simply means you acknowledge that you have a situation you're dealing with, which is going to be most every arena of life, that you can't really handle very well on your own. And you are humbling your ego and saying, God, we need you involved. And seek his face and pray, he'll heal the land. The quickest way to push this out of America and out of the world is when the church universal, the body of Christ, will start rising up with one voice, calling on the name of the Lord, and he says he will heal your land. The land that he's called you to be a part of. I'm grateful and thankful to be an American. And I have an interest in seeing the legacy that America uh, has and the future perpetuity for our children of a level of blessing that has never been experienced before. I want to see America be all she can be. And it'll only be when we bring her back to the place of God's principle operating through the laws of our land and through the leadership that we put in those offices of authority. So let's begin praying. Our governor, he's a good man who wants to see the best for Minnesota. Let's don't demonize him if we don't agree with him. I believe his heart is to do the best he can do for Minnesota. So what we need to do is pray for him, pray for the guidance, that only God can bring the decision-making process. Pray for any blinders that secular opinion may have put on him so he has eyes to see and respond to truth. Pray for him and for his protection and for preserving his family and then for the wisdom that's needed for Minnesota. Pray for the president and others in authority in the same manner, that the decision-making process of our civil government would be predicated on the ethic this nation was founded upon. And pray for God to heal our land. And surely this coronavirus will quickly become a thing of the past. And it won't have to be 
at the expense of our economic experience of life. Well, you know, I could, get, I could wax eloquent for a long time on all of these stuff, all of these things, perhaps not even so eloquent. But uh, I will, in the interest of time guidelines, uh, bring this to a conclusion. Uh, these are things that you need to give some deep prayer and consideration to.